Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide. Good morning. Welcome to Talk Back Gardening. Good morning, John Lamb. Good morning, Deb. Good morning, gardeners. And if you're planning to prune this weekend, don't do it. It's too wet. But next weekend, my little model suggests it's going to be fine next weekend. And do it next weekend because the same little model and also this time Darren Ray suggests it's going to be wet at the end of the month. And it looks like the final weekend for August is going to be wet, wet. Wow. And if you would like to see Darren Ray in person, don't forget, John and I will be at the Royal Adelaide Show both Saturdays, the 3rd of September and the 10th of September. And Darren Ray will be joining us on the 3rd live from the Royal Adelaide Show. Yes, come and talk to him live and you can ask your particular question about weather and uh, if you want to, if you're game enough, ask him about climate change. He's hot bottle on climate change. Statistically, the information that the scientists have got access to, uh, Darren works with and he is a very, very... uh, Uh, interesting person to talk about uh, climate change. Okay, so all of that. And, of course, bring your gardening questions to us live. That's what we really, really, really want. And we're going to speak to turf specialist uh, Stefan Palmer in just a moment because I know my winter lawn is looking very sad. Lots of weeds, they're doing well, but nice to revitalise it for spring. Yes, and uh, I think uh, on the theme of restoring and revitalising, we might take a look at uh, uh, getting the vegetable garden ready for spring. Uh, and we'll do that in the final half hour of the program. If you're feeling a little bit cold and miserable, you're not the only ones. The gardens at the moment have got winter yellows and even the lawn itself, uh, they're starting to lose their colour and there has to be a way to get the lawns back into good colour and in active mode so it's ready for summer and spring even before that. Stefan Palm is... <laughs> Goodness gracious me. Good morning to you, Stefan Palm. Good morning. Good morning, John. Uh, I get too excited and I forget where I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's understandable. Yeah. Uh, goodness gracious. Look, let's uh, focus on the summer active grasses, you know, the cooch, the buffaloes, the kukuyus. They suffer so much during winter and on the other hand, many people, not many, but some people have uh, rye, have lawns made out of ryegrass and, and tall fescue, and they're thriving at the moment. What's the difference between the two? Yeah, it's a great question. And, um, you know, most people have heard those terms that you've used, like cool season and warm season grasses. And it simply is, um, over time, there's two distinct categories of grasses which have, um, I guess, adapted to different climatic conditions. So warm season grasses thrive in the warm weather and likewise um, cool season thrive in the cool so um, cool season grasses have adapted to tolerate cold weather in fact they've even got proteins in them that prevent them from freezing under frost Um, they enjoy the cooler temperatures they um, they enjoy the moisture it's just their sweet spot so right now they're looking the best because they're in their prime it's a pity that uh, the lawn breeders of new varieties can't get the antifreeze out of the, uh, uh, the the tall fescues and put them into the cooch grasses and buffaloes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. If you had a couple hundred thousand years, we could probably uh, uh, adapt over time and, and maybe come up with something like that. Yeah. Okay, so uh, <laughs> there are many reasons, of course, why people grow uh, uh, their 
uh, warm season grasses, there are so many benefits in terms of its tolerance to heat and drought and things like that. That's right. But yep. there they are. They're sitting there. They're not very happy. How can we revitalise them and restore them, particularly if they've lost their colour? Yeah, and it's um, th- this is the I guess we're at the right at the very beginning of of um, or potentially at the start of September is the is the mark of the, the line in the sand where those grasses have a chance to um, or, or get their, their, their act into gear and start growing again. And it's all to do with temperature. And you'll find that those three categories of grasses that you've mentioned will all emerge at different times. Um, and it's all based on how warm the soil gets um, as to when they're going to do it. So lawns like Kaikuyu, for instance, will come out of dormancy reasonably quickly um, as soon as the spring starts because their, their um, temperature requirements are lower. Um, so you might expect a, a Kaikuyu to start coming out of dormancy early September, um, whereas a, a cooch grass um, needs a little higher temperature in the soil, so it'll um, it'll it'll probably get going uh, depending on the season, you know, mid mid to late September, even early October, and then the buffaloes being a subtropical grass, it's one step higher again, and so um, you're waiting till early October uh, before they'll start to um, emerge from winter dormancy. That's fascinating. Okay, so there the cooch grasses uh, and and the buffaloes are a little bit slower, and presumably that has a, a big implication in terms of how you should manage it, particularly in terms of perhaps uh, mowing and uh, the lawn mower. Maybe uh, the people that come in and mow your lawn need to know that information as well. Oh, they do, and and in, even in how you decide to um, time how you treat your lawn. So if you're you know, if you're going to go out and um, and, and do some uh, maintenance on it or, or fertilise and things like that, if, if you were to go out on a buffalo lawn, for instance, at the start of September, thinking it's spring, I'll get going on it and I'll I'll, um, I'll tip all this um, effort into getting it green again, because the heat's not there, it's not going to respond at all. And so you, if, if you misplace your timing, you're, you're not going to get anywhere at all. So it's important to keep that in mind. So when it comes to fertilising, you'd fertilise a kikuyu lawn earlier than you would, say, a buffalo? 100%, yep. Yeah. How about that? Coming back to colour, um, why do the cooch grasses and, and, and uh, the warm season grasses, why do they lose their colour when they're cold? Um, it's, it comes back to the, um, um, mostly to the, to the cold sensitivity. So um, without getting too much into the, the science behind it, they've, the, the way that, they, um, um, that, they, that the molecules in the grass um, grow are developed over time specifically to respond to and grow in warm conditions so when they get cold they simply drop off and they they do that to conserve energy so um a grass once they, they will um brown off when they get frost simply because they don't like the cold but but also they'll they won't deliver nutrient they won't they'll, they they're literally in hibernation um as a defense mechanism if you like um through the cooler months and just don't respond don't grow don't put any effort in if you like um, until the weather gets warmer again. We're talking to uh, Stefan Palm, lawn consultant here in South Australia, about getting your lawn revitalised and ready for spring. And uh, we also need questions coming in soon. Deb. Yes, we've got uh, a couple of calls, but love you to call in now. Don't leave it until the end. That's what happens every week. Um, you listening, of course, because Stefan is so fascinating. Um, and you can listen while you're on hold. Call in on one three hundred triple two eight nine one if you'd like to talk with him. Let's just continue on the colour for just a moment Stefan and uh, okay so there are times when if you're selling a house and you, you want the lawn to look nice and green or you've got a, a party or something like that you can have instant green. You've got a product that can actually make the lawns suddenly turn green. Tell us about yeah, it. Yeah look 
yeah, if you're in winter and you, you do need to get some action going on your grass and you need it to look good, of course, if it's cold, we've, we've um, already talked through that. You, you, there's not much you can do by way of nutrient and water and all that sort of stuff. So you can actually get a, um, a product called Colour King, and it's a, um, a pigment dye, um, if you like. Um, it, it, actually, it's not a dye, it's a pigment. It, get, it gets into the, um, um, the blades of the grass, and it restores colour instantly to, um, um, to give it a, a, a green hit um, as soon as you've sprayed it. It's, it's quite, a, quite a magical thing to watch happen. So it's actually absorbed like a nutrient. It's not just a paint that goes over and says it's green. Correct. Yeah, and in that way it stays on, and so it doesn't wash off. It doesn't. Um, it's not like a coating, if you like. Um, so All right. that, that, that pig gets and, absorbed. Yeah. And that's called Color King. Does it come from oh. uh, garden centres, or that's a specialist store um, um, on the, look, online? It, you can get it online. Um, you can get it from from um, garden centres. It um, if, if they specialise in turf, but it is a more a turf specialist sort of thing. But it is widely available. So. Um, um, a Google search of um, Colour King will certainly set you up with some options there. While we're waiting for calls, another oddball situation, Stefan. Um, many people see that on their lawns on a nice sunny day, <laughs> there are birds having, causing mayhem. They're having a fight. They seem to be doing something, scratching, eating, uh, and they're different kinds of birds on different lawns. Could you tell us what's happening there? Yeah, um, th- this is a, something that happens at this time of year. It's very, it's very um, uh, focused on late winter, and it's typically um, granivorous birds, um, your, your galahs and your cockies and things like that 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 um, eat um, vegetarian type of diet. They're kind of running out of food um, and um, from the usual traps, and so they've discovered quite smartly because they are a very smart bird that if they get into kikuyu lawns specifically, they can kind of dig up their runners and eat the rhizomes because there's some sugary starches in there that they just can't get enough of. So if you find that you're, um, uh, you've got a, a, a bit of a population of galahs going on in your backyard um, and you've got a kaikuya lawn because it's, it's typically kaikuya that they get into, it's that. They're literally hungry. They've figured out that um, you've got a nice little uh, food source in your back or front yard and they're going to have a go at it. They're so after, they, a, uh, after a sugar hit. Yeah. And they don't just want the top; they want it. They actually want to dig, and so they'll they'll fossick around and they'll they'll rip those runners out from underneath. So they leave quite a mess. Like they've got a, a um, runners and all sorts of bits of lawn hanging around the top when you've uh, when they're done. So yeah. What about a... magpies? You often see magpies on the lawn. Are yeah, doing the same are, thing. Yeah, they're they're digging around for insects, um, and more than more than they are trying to eat the lawn itself. So that that's the difference. Some birds will want to eat what's in the lawn, and some birds will want to eat the lawn itself. And right now, it's the um, it's the birds having a having a crack at the uh, um, substituting their diet uh, for lawn. So again, yeah. that's fascinating. You've either got birds that are meat eaters or other birds that are want a sugar fix. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh goodness gracious! And people get frustrated. They get frustrated. I mean, how do I? It's very hard to get rid of them because um, um, they're a gorgeous bird, um, galahs, and and they're a very smart one. And they'll they'll keep coming back. And your your efforts to kind of run out there with your hands flapping around trying to scare them away. They kind of move and then they move straight back again. So it's quite the effort. All right. Well, we'll leave it there because I'm conscious that uh, Deb is suggesting I stop talking (laughs) (laughs) and stop asking questions because there are gardeners' questions coming your way, Stefan. It's quite right. Stefan Palm, our turf specialist. Uh, What he doesn't know about lawn ain't worth knowing. Let's rip through as many of them as we possibly (laughs) can. Walter at Tea Tree Gully, good morning. Yes, good morning, John. Good morning, Stefan. 
I've got a lovely I've got a lovely Santa Ana lawn. Uh, in the summertime, I scalped it right back to get rid of all the thatch, and that was successful. But I've never cored the lawn. Is it worthwhile coring the lawn? Previously, I've just put the garden fork in there and aerated it. But should I core the lawn? Yeah, look, coring is a great thing to do, and now is the time of year to get into it. Um, what coring does, which is different from what um, putting your fork in the um, in the soil does, is it actually takes a core of lawn um, soil root zone out of the out of the lawn itself. Whereas putting a, a solid tine in there just compacts the soil to make room for the tine itself or the, the fork um, tine. So it's best to do coring um, as opposed to um, um, using a, a fork, um, and it, it's really helpful. So it, it thins out the root zone. It renovates the grass. It kind of gives it a new new lease of life. It it stimulates the root zone to um to grow and to be active. So um, now's the time to do it. And absolutely, it's a really good um um health benefit uh, to get into coring at um, late winter, early early spring. Excellent question, Walter. Thanks very much for that. And in Modbury, you've got the uh, age old problem of sour sobs in the lawn. Yes, I do. Good morning, gentlemen. Um. Yes, I, I just want to uh, find out some advice on how I can control them. Um, I've got two patches of lawn. One is worse than the other. Uh, I seem to be pulling them out so I can grab all the little um, uh, pods that are underneath. Little but bolts, what, what yep. would you recommend? Yep. Look, you're on the right track. Um, sow sobs, because of the bulbs that they have and the, the bulbs that they grow um, in the soil, uh, relentless, and you'll know that, and anyone else that's tackling sour sobs will know that too. That they um, they just keep coming. But the secret to controlling sour sobs is just being um, relentless in your approach to them, being persistent. And so, when you remove a sour sob, um, one sour sob bulb can only grow one sour sob, but um, um, it grows a whole bunch of others um, around the outside of its little white taproot as it goes. So, all those want to send up new sour sobs once you've pulled it out because it activates them. So. Um, being persistent is the key and whether you be persistent by hand pulling them or dabbing them with some glyphosate um, it, it really doesn't matter in that sense but the um, uh, the goal is whenever you see one pull it and if you've got a lot of them it'll take a bit of effort to begin with but um, over time you'll eventually get rid of them but it's it's there's no silver bullet with sour sobs it's a um, it's a dedication of time and um, an effort, but eventually you will actually get on top of them. Slow and steady persistence. Be the, mm. uh, what is it, the tortoise and the hare? Be the tortoise, Anne. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> um, Michelle from Ross Trevor, what's happening with your lawn? I've got a beautiful big back lawn and the birds love coming in, little spoggies and parrots. I have um, rainbow parrots. I'm right near the hills. So yeah. my lawn's yeah. got, my, yeah, I think it's buffalo or kakuyu. I don't know the difference. I have to look it up. But it's also got a really fine, really fine lawn that seems to be taking over the lawn that was existing. And every summer that bit dies back and looks terrible. And I went out there last year and picked uh, a whole heap of uh, prickle leaves, clover sort of leaves out. How do mm. I safely um, feed my lawn without hurting the birds and um, kill off that really fine grass that's coming up everywhere? Does a fine grass come up seasonally? Is it like a, a grass that is there sometimes of the year and not others? Yes, so it's coming up now because it's beautiful and green. It looks beautiful and green out there, but I know that there's mm -hmm. weeds. <laughs> there's a yep. fine grass that seems yeah. to be taking over. Yeah. 
look, I totally, I, I totally understand the um, um, the want, the need to do that um, in an environmentally conscious way, um, protecting the, the fauna and flora around the place. But um, the the best way to do that is in the summertime. Um, it's probably a winter grass that you're, you're seeing coming up, which is um, fine and, and nice and green and covers over during the winter months. Um, but during the instead of attacking that now with a with a chemical, you can wait until about um, kind of March um, and then get what's called a pre-emergent herbicide. While it is still a chemical, it's one that you apply to the surface and then water in straight away. So there's nothing left hanging around on top. And that then stops those seeds from re-germinating again the next winter. Um, and so that's that's your approach to take there. It's a it's, it's do nothing now. Um, it'll die off by itself. It'll, it will come again next winter if you don't do anything. But in the mar in March, get some pre-emergent herbicide like Spartan, for instance, um, and um, um, apply that. And then you won't see that come back again next winter. You mentioned that chemical there, Spartan. That's the trade name. What's the active ingredient? Oh, I wish I could pronounce that. Um, it's a very long one. If you oh, if right you uh, if you Google that one, it's a um, it's a, a pre-emergent herbicide. Like I said, it gets watered into the pre to the, to the sub. Um, and that's different from the pro, uh, propizamide. Yes, so that's a that's a surface one, and that's that, that that is one that you have to leave on. The, oh no, you watered that one in as well, but it's yes. it's much more effective than that um, because propizamide um, it, it that is attacks the actual living plant, um, and it's it's a bit sketchy about how it works, and it's not particularly successful in controlling yeah. the plant. Winter grass is such a major problem, and I think you're right on the money in terms of saying, look, get rid of it by not letting it get going early in the season, and that chemical mm. is spartan, and all you need is dollars. It's not the cheapest, is it? It's not, but it, it, long-term effects as well. It's, it's worth mentioning that when, when you do a pre-emergent herbicide, you actually reduce your herbicide usage, usage into the future, which is good for everything. So it means that you don't have to keep then applying more and more chemicals into the future because you've, you've stopped the cycle um, by, by not allowing the seeds to germinate in the first place. Good luck with that, Michelle. Uh, Helen is in Norwood. Have you got some invasive weeds, Helen? Uh, and good morning. I've got a dichondra lawn, but there's a very fine weed threading through. It's low, and it's got a. It's just a, each leaf's like six or five or six tiny, weeny little leaves, but it's very green. Um, mm. I don't can't name it. I'm sorry. Um, it's probably how do I treat it? it? Yeah. <laughs> and what's the long term effect? Uh, because you've got dichondra, you can't. There's not much you can do other than physical removal, and because of the type of weed that you have, physical removals, it's probably not the best way to to get rid of that weed. But um, there's no there's no chemical approach to that, um, and there's no um, real successful um, non chemical approach the, it, with an invasive weed like that in a sensitive plant like dichondra. It's that's hard ground. <laughs> and Stephen, really... what did you say it was in all likelihood? It's Probably what's called creeping oxalis. So do some do some background research on that. It's a it's a creeping weed. It has little runners and uh, produces a little tiny like clover like leaf with lots of little um, petals uh, or blades. Um, has a little yellow flower. Um, it's it's a tough weed. Yeah, um, Stefan. And, if somebody rang me and I would sort of say put on MCPA and and probably uh, uh, one of the spreading uh, herbicides. On, on dichondra, you'll take that out as well. Oh, I take the dichondra out, yeah, okay. Listen, yeah. I was talking to uh, to <laughs> Susie, our producer, who's a very, very keen gardener, and she has three grandchildren. She's got the, the answer to weeds in the lawn. She's teaching the kids 
her grandchildren to identify the worms, uh, the, the, the weeds, and then she's got little tools and they, they dig up the weeds. Oh, look, I couldn't encourage that more. Like, it's any, any sort of non-chemical approach that you can use to, to control weeds and um, literally pulling them out. Um, if you do that before they seed, um, before they flower and seed, you, you will get on top of it. And little incentives for kids like that um, can be really successful. Yeah, 20 cents if you get... 20, 20 right. cents for a cent per weed. <laughs> Great. <Yeah. laughs> uh, thanks very much, Helen. Uh, John is in Goolwa with a cooch question. Hi, John. Hello. Um, <clears throat> I've got um, a lot of very small weeds in the cooch lawn, and I was wondering if uh, a weak solution of Roundup might take the weeds out without killing the cooch while, if it's done while the cooch is dormant. There are, I wouldn't recommend it at all. Um, it, it's, I, it, it can be done, but it's, it's a very fine science, that one. Um, it, it, it all is, it's all about timing. It's not recommended. It's not label rated for that. Um, I, wouldn't, um, I wouldn't go down that road. I'd, I'd identify what the weeds are. And if you want to use um, herbicides to do it, find a, find a herbicide that's, um, uh, that will take out that weed and you'll find cooch is very robust um, in its tolerance of of um, that sort of approach. So um, I, I, I wouldn't recommend using a non-selective herbicide to, um, to control weeds in a, in a plant simply because your, um, your risk of, of damaging the, all plants mm. is high. Thank you, John. Uh, we've got three left for you. We'll start first with David in Ross Trevor. You've got a cooch lawn as well, David. Uh, yes, I have. Good morning, Stefan. And morning. Uh, two years ago, I had it treated for something I didn't know existed, which was cooch mite. And Ooh, yes. uh, it was a major, a major treatment. It was all cut back low and, you know, all the stuff that you do. And I discovered you, you can't get a retail product to put it, put it on yourself. You have to have mm. the spray put on by mm. a professional. Uh, it came back a bit last year and I thought, oh, I can't be bothered with spending all that money, so I'll let it go. My question yep. relates to the two patches that are still there and they're quite dead the rest of the lawn is looking not too bad at this stage i'm wondering yep. do i dig those patches right out and buy some new turf or do i scrape them off low and try and encourage it to grow with um quite mites, dead. probably probably yeah. 30 centimeters 30 centimeters to 50 centimeters diameter each patch yep and mites are an emerging problem um, and they're not easily solved especially mites that have been in a cooch lawn for a long period of time. Um, they're hard to get out. Um, we've, we've worked extensively um, with different um, methods and trials to, to remove cooch mites from cooch um, in domestic lawns where they've been there for a while and, and are still, it's still in progress. And so what I can say is that without treatment, um, they will persist. And then they've got a very vigorous and very aggressive breeding rate. Uh, they breed about every two weeks. Um, and so the the, um, the chances of that particular patch that you've got increasing are high. Um, they won't stay where they are. They just they're voracious feeders and they and breeders and and they'll they'll keep marching through the rest of it as well. So the the treatment program that you've had before, um, yes, it does involve some chemicals that are quite um, um, need to be very considerately applied, um, and hence why they need to be professionally um, done. Um, it's it's a tough problem. Um, my, my advice to you is that just by by scalping it and removing it, you won't remove the problem. There'll still be eggs in the thatch that will that will um, regerminate or freeze um, um, rehatch. Sorry. Um, yeah, long term, 
if you, if you want to continue to keep those mites out of that cooch lawn, it's probably further applications of um, or, or programs like you've probably already experienced. Thank you, David. Sarah from Kaipo, sticking with pests, what's your problem? Uh, hello, everyone. I, I've spoken to Stefan before. We live on a farm and have about 400 square metres of lawn. In the past, we've had um, uh, grubs, black beetle grubs um, that have come up and the birds have attacked the lawn and made an awful mess. So about every three months, um, now I spray it with Confidor and it seems to keep the problem away. But I'm just conscious of the fact that I'm doing it every three months. And is there an alternative? Um, again, we live on a farm, so there's probably not a lot I can do. Yeah, so there is, there are better um, chemicals now than... Um um, than Confidor. Um, so it's called, the one I recommend you should, you should use, and it lasts for longer um, and is safer on the environment and safer on on people, um, is called Acelaprin, Acelaprin, GR. Um, and so that will, an application of that will last for six months. So one timed in, one application timed in September will get through the whole year. Um, it's watered in, it's granule. Um, if you're going to choose a, um, a, a beetle, a um, program or, or, a, or a product to control beetle larvae that that out of all that you could choose that would be the one to use that uh, chemical you mentioned acelaprin that's relatively new it's what i call new age chemical and i my understanding is it's just the one company that just got that would that be correct yeah um but, well so, it's you can in a for a commercial size area that you've got um yes um acelaprin gr is the one to use you can give it in 20 kilo bags and um, it'll cover the area effectively. Yeah, I reckon. Right. Um, I reckon Yates do a small one as well. Um, That's right. Yates, Yates have got one just yeah. simply called Grub Lawn Killer. Uh, it's yeah. got that acelaprin, uh, and they're the first uh, to get home gardeners access to that. You can buy it, as you say, in the right. tw- the twenty yeah. kilogram bag. But yeah, uh, exactly. home gardeners yeah. have now got access to that particular okay. chemical. Interesting. And, yeah. um, thank you very much for that, Sarah. Chris in Cockatoo Valley, moss. Now, Jules Schiller will be listening very intently. He is the president of the Moss Appreciation Society. Oh, <laughs> yes, go. G'day, Sam. How are you going? Um, the issue Good, I have you. is that I'm near um, gum trees and stuff like that as well, and moss seems to grow every year. I seem yep. to um, repel it quite nicely and scratch it off the top, but it continues to go back. Is it worth coring to get rid of the moss? What are you using is to it control it's the moss? a drainage issue. Pardon? What's, what, what are you using to control the moss? I think it's just generic Bunnings uh, moss kill, basically. It burns okay. it all off and uh, it turns black yeah. and I scratch it off. Yep. Yep. And that's probably got a, like a high iron type, um, high ammonia um, granular sort of product, which is it's good good to use that sort of stuff um, rather than chemical sort of um, approaches. But yeah, the, um, the environment that you've got is probably a um, um, really conducive to growing moss and algae. So um, coring the lawn under those that definitely helps. I mean, the, the water sitting on the surface is an issue. Um, so the um, um, draining that moisture away from the surface is definitely a, um, a thing to do. Um, aside from that, if you still get regrowth, then then persistence with um, with natural sort of remedies like that are really uh, successful. You, you may have to do it once or twice in a season, but um, ongoing. Um, if you've got an environment under a tree like that, and you want to also you know be conscious of the tree and the, the roots of the tree. Um, then um, natural approaches like that are probably something you'll have to persist with. Thank you, Chris. Good luck. And I said there'd be three, but there's actually a fourth call. Kate is in Angerston. You've got clover in your kakuyu, Kate. 
Yes, hi, John and Stefan. Um, yeah, I've got a kaikuyu lawn, but it's about yep. 70% clover at the moment. Um, right. yep. And each year I usually try and tackle it by pulling it out, um, yep. but it needs big bare patches, um, which I try and over-sow, um, but it just doesn't seem to work. So I'm at a bit of a loss what to, what to do. Um, it, it, there, are, there are several approaches that you can do. In, interestingly, on your point, um, I had a, um, a, some feedback from a um, from a um, someone who contacted us during the week, saying that in the introduction of clover into kaikuyu lawns was a, a successful strategy in tackling um, bird damage because glass don't eat clover, but they do eat kaikuyu. So just tuck that one just for your other listeners, John, behind your ear. Um, the introduction of um, strawberry clovers into kaikuyu lawns might be a a solution for some people in that sense, but for the people that don't want, like you, that don't want the clover in the kaikuyu lawn, clover is a hard weed to get out um, or hard plant to remove from any lawn because of its um, aggressive runners that it sends under the soil. So um, you can do it. Um, there's a, um, a product called Bow and Arrow, which you can use, which is um, um, different sort of, once again, like John was talking about before, it's a new technology um, herbicide, which you can use to um, to control clover. Um, and then, um, into the future, if you want to knock out the clover seeds, then um, Spartan, once again, pre-emergent. And beyond that, then you wouldn't need to use chemicals again um, to control that weed because you would have knocked it out. So, yes, it is a, um, a chemical approach in the first instance, but long term, um, you reduce your, your chemical consumption. Stefan, many people would go into their garden centre and come out with a weed and feed, and a weed and feed would knock off the clover. Uh, tell us why you don't like weed and feed. Um in any sense, in any case, um, those sorts of products are, are um, not that successful at weeds, tough weeds like haiku, uh, like um, clover. But um, even then, again, if you're using chemicals like that, they, they work at a certain concentration, a certain amount of um, chemical with a certain amount of water sprayed over a certain area. In that sense, they're effective. But when you click them on your hose and you spray water through, um, you don't have a lot of control over how diluted or how concentrated you're applying. And so... In that, and you're spraying it around all over the place, and um, it's just not an effective way of applying a chemical, in any sense. So, um, yes, you can have some success with them, but it's it's not consistent success, and it's not um, um, it's not a good way to apply um, chemicals. Stefan Palm is our guest, turf consultant. And Stefan, I'm only halfway through the questions that I was going to ask you, and I don't think we can talk lawns uh, for any further. So maybe I need to put you on hold, and maybe as we move into spring, we'll get you back, because the vital question I need to get from you is a recipe to get your lawns, a plan to get the lawn back into action. But just a, yep. a, a side comment, uh, the issues that have been raised uh, there this morning, uh, whether it's uh, uh, moss, birds, uh, cooch mite, sour sobs, all of those have been covered by you in your lawn blog uh, in the last couple of months. And anybody that is interested in lawns, you really do need to subscribe to the lawn blog put out by Stefan Palm. And if you just Google Stefan Palm, lawn blog you'll get that and anybody that gets the good gardening newsletter uh, the blog is uh, introduced to you each week in the good gardening newsletter and there's a direct link to the blog so two ways of getting it but if you're a lawn person make sure that you get up to date with what's happening with lawns you won't get a better authority many thanks for your contribution this morning Stefan as you can see there's a lot of lawn 
questions out there, a lot of interest in lawns, and look forward to talking to you in the near future. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Stefan. Uh, John Lorraine text through saying, feeling for people in the UK and Europe with the drought there and all the lawns looking like really Adelaide lawns in the middle of summer, brown and dry. Many people will remember just after the turn of the century here in South Australia, we had a very persistent period of dry weather and lawns became almost banned. Uh, We're under very severe water restrictions in those times and you couldn't water your lawn. And uh, so it goes around in cycles. It does indeed. We'll come back to revitalising your veggie patch in just a moment. But Kim from Glenelg has called through with an olive tree question. Welcome, Kim. Hi, how are you going? Um, Just wanted to know when's the best time to trim the olive tree back. Well, it depends on uh, whether you want fruit for this season or not. Um, it's probably uh, the, uh, the answer to your question is soon as possible after it's ha- been ha- the fruit has been harvested, and that's usually very very late in aut- autumn. Some uh, varieties don't even uh, uh, have their fruit ripen until uh, round of, or earlier in winter. So that's the time uh, ideally. You could do it now. But what you'll be doing is uh, 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 reducing the amount of uh, wood that's going to produce you uh, the fruit for the following season. So uh, it depends on... It hasn't fruited yet. We're just trying to um, uh, contain the the size of the tree. Oh, if you're pruning for shape, I'd say wait another couple of weeks and then uh, when you can see that there's new... Uh, elongation of the uh, main laterals, that's the time to carry out your pruning. Sure, thank you. Just another quick one. I've just transplanted some roses and I'm just wondering um, when I should fertilise them. I'd do that uh, even if you can get a break in the weather, do that now. Uh, Are you organic or or manufactured fertiliser? Sorry? Which kind of fertiliser are you using? Organic or manufactured? Uh, I don't know which is best. <laughs> <laughs> There's no such thing as best, I don't think. It's a matter of what suits you. If you're organic, there's probably chicken manure pellets. No point in putting them on the surface. Uh, yeah, they'll break down and half the nitrogen will disappear up into the ether. So if you're going to use an organic fertiliser, you need to scratch it into the ground. Only into the top couple of centimetres will get you away. Otherwise, if you're going to use a, an organic, a, a, a manufactured fertiliser, it'll dissolve very, very quickly and leach itself into where it's needed. To, uh, to activate the root system. So uh, do it as soon as you possibly can with roses because they're bursting into new growth. They're using a lot of energy. And if you want flowers to follow, the bushes need as much energy as you possibly can. So fertilise now rather than waiting till the middle of spring. Thanks, Kim. Good luck with that. John is in Maitland. And, John, you've got a tomato question. It's no program without a tomato no, question. You're quite right. Uh, John, I've been given uh, some Siberian tomato seeds. Oh, good. Do I treat them any different to any other variety? Uh, no, probably the only thing you might do different is uh, hold on to some uh, of the seed and plant the seeds probably early in autumn. So you get them up and established and well and truly established for winter because supposedly they've got extra cold tolerance. And uh, so if you get them going in very early in autumn, you should be having tomatoes right through the year. So you don't recommend 
them for their hot weather? Um, no, I, I think that, that, I mean, they've just got extra tolerance to cold. So get them going as you would in springtime. You can either get them going uh, as seed now um, and look after the seed and look after the seedlings so you're ready to plant out the seedlings in that late August, uh, late uh, uh, September, early October period. Uh, but as I say, because they've got cold tolerance, uh, you, I mean, it's a big ask for expect your tomatoes to go through from summer, uh, from spring through to autumn. A lot of people do that, and of course they ring up in winter and say, I'm still picking my tomatoes, <laughs> so it can be done. But I, as an insurance, I would have uh, some, hold back some seed and plant them uh, uh, when Stephen, uh, when uh, uh, Darren Ray suggests that uh, the hot, hot weather, not that we're going to get too much according to Darren, but once the hot weather has gone, I'd be planting some more seeds and having a late crop of tomatoes. Yeah, and give, doing a bit of an experiment, John. You can tell us how it went with your Siberian tomatoes. I shall do that. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Interesting call. And as John said, it would not be a program without a tomato question. Kim is in Streaky Bay with a wonderful plant, the sweet potato. What are you hoping to do, Kim? Uh, Yes. Um, Sorry, I just turned that speaker off. Right, fire away. Have you planted them or you want to plant them? From one garden to another. Is it too early to do it? plant has only got a few shoots left on it, but it looks as though it's about to reshoot. So you want to dig up the plant and, and transfer it into another spot? Yes. Okay. Um, I wouldn't be doing that yet. Um, they are very much warm, loving plants. Um, and so if you do it now... Uh, they won't take off. They'll sit there and sulk and they might even rot on you. Kim, have you picked your phone up? Are you listening to us on the telephone? Yes, I was told to turn the speaker off. Yep, so you've got us on the handset. Yep, I'm just on a mobile phone. Right, well, we're talking at normal level. I can hear Kim saying he can't hear us very very well, but you may have to listen back to the program, Kim. Uh, There's obviously something wrong at your end, but... um, can I leave my speaker on? I can hear you. No, please, no, don't, definitely don't not. have your speaker on, but have a listen again, John. Sorry, far away. Just, yeah, just uh, in a nutshell, do nothing. Don't do it now. The plant won't survive if you wait until it's time to plant tomatoes. That's that early October period. Do it then. You've got reasonable success. Anybody is thinking of having sweet potatoes this year, now's the time to get your sweet potato as, as a tuber and inside where it's nice and warm, start to germinate it so that by the time we come to October, early October, it's ready to plant out in the garden. But they don't like the cold. Okay, so I hope you caught that, Kim. Thank you very much for calling in. Uh, and from McGill, powdery mildew strikes, and. Again, <laughs> um, they're probably quite high, which I, was, I had glorious begonias in large pots and I've had them for years and um, I seem to be getting powdery mildew at this time of the year every year now and I sprayed, I sprayed them this time with a carb soda mix and um, I, have, I just looked out there this morning, I do have some new green growth coming and I'm just wondering whether um, the, some of the leaves... I'm not sure because the carb soda looks like the powdery mildew when you look at it, but I wiped it with a clean cloth and it does wipe off. So does powdery mildew wipe off? 
Yes, it does, but it doesn't get rid of the problem. It's still there. It'll just uh, keep on uh, procreating. Um, Rather than your bicarb, uh, get a better version of that. And if you get uh, eco-rose or eco-fungicide, it's not... uh, uh, Well, it's a potassium-based bicarbonate, and it's more effective... And probably if you mix up the eco-rose or eco-fungicide with one of the summer oils, you'll find that that, I think, will solve the problem. Um, there is another chemical available, zaloton. Zaloton, very expensive, yeah. very, very, very effective on fungus, uh, uh, in controlling a, a very wide range of fungal problems. But you can only use it on ornamentals and begonias, of course, it would be... That's what I, in fact, that's what I use. I have the uh, powdery mildew sometimes on my uh, begonias, and zaloton is the chemical that I use. Is, is it about making sure they've got breeze, you know, like um, some air movement as well, which seems Absolutely, yes. Uh, mm. Powdery mildew gets established in very high humidity, and we're, that's right now. We're having very high humidity uh, when it's not raining. It's still very, very humid air, and uh, you need air movement. And uh, the temperatures for powdery mildew is in that sort of uh, in the twenties. And uh, overcast, cool, humid weather is a monte for powdery mildew. Thank you, John. Thanks for the call, Anne. Lovely to hear from you. And and on the issue of sweet potatoes, John, this texter says. If your listeners go to an Asian grocer and buy a bunch of sweet potato leaves, they can pick off the leaves themselves and add them to a stir fry. They are delicious. Then the tips can be placed in water and they will make root in a very short space of time. So that's an excellent way to get sweet potatoes growing. You you get almost 100% success rate. I like that one (laughs) very much. Thank you very much. Thanks, whoever sent that. Uh, Just quickly, John, um, before we give away a couple of magazines... Revitalising your veggie patch. What are the key things we should be doing there to get ready for our spring uh, plantings? Lots of organic matter. The garden soil is full of life. It's teeming with life. And uh, that's a subject of a, of a number of books. But uh, it's the fungi and the bacteria and the nematodes and heaven knows what else is in there. And they need feeding. And if you start now and put organic matter either on the soil or in the soil. I would suggest you put it in the soil. It's more effective. But go and buy yourself. Let's say you've got a garden bed and you want to revitalize it and it might be a, a raised garden bed. Go and buy a bag of potting mix, uh, not of potting mix, of cow manure and, and put uh, a bag of cow manure to the square metre and that'll give you a layer of probably three or four centimetres. And you can either leave it there and it'll get washed into the topsoil, but more effectively, dig that into the top 20 centimetres. And in six weeks' time or eight weeks' time, when you're putting out your warm season vegetables, the soil will be teeming with life because you've activated the soil. A simple action of putting organic matter in the soil. Uh, If you've got compost at home, use your compost and you'd use half a bag of cow manure and the equivalent size of compost and dig that into the soil. 
Get your soil activated now and you will be amazed at how effective that is in growing better plants and not having to water nearly as often because the organic matter not only feeds the soil, it also acts like a sponge and holds onto the moisture and that's when you're going to need it. Tom is in Holden Hill. Tom, good morning. Good good morning and I apologise for my voice. I've got a bit of a lurgy. Um, in, in the same line of experimenting with tomatoes, a couple of years ago I... I'd I prepared an area for a couple of fruit trees and it didn't eventuate. And I had a 10-year-old packet of brown mustard seeds, food, food, you know, for food grade. And I threw four or five tablespoons of these seeds in there. And today I've got kale, um, silver beet, top of silver beet, uh, a purple and green uh, mustard uh, uh, leaf plant, which tastes like horseradish, it blows your head off, and, and another type of kale, which is similar to curly kale, all from a, a brown mustard seed packet of seeds, meant for humans. So I thought it was fantastic. I mean, I just left it there and sitting dormant, and these plants, and two years later, they're still going, so they must be perennial, and they're, but they're still flowering as well. At the moment, they're just starting again. The flower. And you're suggesting just, that the, the uh, strange kind of veggies that have come up were part of the seed with the mustard packet? Well, I'm pretty close to being sure, that John, because all of them are related to mustard anyway. Mm. All, all the kale, all the, all the, um, uh, the silver beet, they all seem to be very similar to all the mustard family. Yes, okay. Um, and did you dig the yeah. mustard in, into the soil? No, no, I'm eating them. The one where the leaves are green and purple, they're very, very attractive. Okay. But like, right. it, but like I said, if you eat them, it's just like eating uh, horseradish. It, it's really powerful stuff. It's hot, hot stuff, and that's the hot, oh, hot stuff is called uh, uh, glucosinolate. And many people grow uh, their bros- uh, brassica kind of plants, and particularly mustard. It's very, very high in glucosinolate. And uh, uh, farmers at one stage were actually uh, trying to control uh, some of the little greeblies in the soil and by having uh, uh, a particular kind of a crop. But if you dig the, your mustard crops in, uh, yeah. uh, th- then that releases the glucosinolate, and that then means that if you've got uh, uh, greeblies in the soil uh, before you plant your tomatoes, that cleans up the soil, and it's a very, very uh-huh. effective way. It's part of crop rotation, and people who are into crop rotation are well-versed on, on the use of those kind of, of plants. Yeah, I just thought I'd mention it because it's just something interesting to get so many different plants from uh, from a, from a pack of the seeds, which was ten years out of date as it was. <laughs> yeah, I'd be sort of a little bit concerned about the quality control of, of that particular seed. Mm. Uh, anyway, good it's luck. It's on the list. It, it yeah. just makes life very interesting. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for calling in. And thank you for all your calls this morning. And on crop rotation, John, uh, this texter asks, when do you suggest pulling up the winter veg in order to get beds ready for the next season's veg? Oh, that's the dilemma, isn't it? And if you've got people who want to grow their own, and so they've filled up their garden full of winter veg, and then what are we going to do? So I'd be suggesting that you plan to uh, enjoy your winter veg as much as you possibly can and say, righto, probably probably by the end of September and early October, or even mid-October, are planning to put in your warm season vegetables. And uh, it's then a matter of 
deliberately saying, right, these are the oldest of the winter veg, or clear the patch, and you actually improve the soil at that stage. And uh, if you haven't got the space to be able to do what I've suggested is revitalise your soil with compost and uh, animal manures, uh, still doing something like putting organic matter into the soil before you plant will still give you many rewards and it's well worth doing, getting organic matter into the soil and feeding the biomass that's in there. Okay, excellent advice. And Brett Draper is sent through a text, John, saying, um, for our information, the systemic fungicide Zalaton is no longer available. Um, the recommendations now are for eco-fungicide, mancozeb or wettable sulphur, depending on the situation. Yes, I think you'll find that some stores still have it. Maybe your chain, Brett, doesn't uh, uh, have any, but uh, I accessed... Uh uh, a packet of that last week, so it is it's available. Around. I, I think they're probably trying to get rid. I want to say get rid of it. Um, there are. It, it's a very very strong uh, tebiaconazole and uh, strife stroxy strobin. Strobin is one of the strobins anyway. Um, they're, 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 farmers are, are well versed with those, and they're very very effective as fungicides. And I think probably uh, um, that particular company are saying we don't want uh, uh, the big hits. We're trying to be as soft as we can uh, in terms of environmental issues and good luck them to, for that so probably if you've got Zaloton use it if you haven't got it as Brett said you may find it difficult to, to obtain. Well lots of feedback for things to look into for the future we've had seed quality raised by listeners secateurs are clearly an issue as well but to Tracy at Blackwood says is there any possibility of John having a segment on soil pathogens I'm concerned I have something going on in my garden but I don't know what to do about it and of course we have spoken very much uh, about soil with Tim Marshall, Tim who Marshall. is our um, amazing organic gardener and an expert in soils. Yes, okay. Well, uh, yes, Tim and, and Kevin Hendrick, of course, is uh, is brilliant in that particular area. But, uh, okay, and, and think, yeah, people need to know what's in the soil. There are goodies in the soil, lots and lots of goodies, but there are baddies in there. And often the goodies, if you've got enough of them, will eat up the baddies. But <laughs> I'll certainly put that one down and see what we can do in the next few weeks uh, as a guest. But uh, looks like it's time to go, so I'll say good gardening. It is. Thanks, John. I hope you enjoy Enjoy that, John Lamb. We'll be back with you uh, next weekend.